I'll be honest, I always find those moments so difficult to transition <laughs> because they're so sweet. Church, we must never take the presence of God for granted. It is a great privilege. And it is something that has been bought by the blood of Jesus. Amen. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. We are coming, by the way, this is the halfway mark of Philippians. Well done. Gosh, I don't want this book to end. I know that's, that terrifies you, but it has just been so good. And today is no different. And I've entitled today's message, Watch Out, with the exclamation mark. And we're going to see we are to watch out for something positive in our lives. We have to guard. We have to keep ourselves in a beautiful place of rejoicing, we're going to see, of the gospel. We have to guard that. But there's another part which is very important, not just something positive that we need to watch out for in our lives and keep an eye on, but also something that is out there that we're going to face that's negative. Uh, and Paul does not mince his language. <laughs> and so let's read what he has to say to these people that he loves so much. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. After all of these two chapters, this is what he says. Finally, my brothers, you can say my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. <laughs> That's his final say. After all that he said, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you. In other words, he's saying, I've written these things over and over and over. And he never grows tired for Paul. He says, to write these same things to you is no trouble to me. And here it is. And is safe for you. Why does he use that word safe? Because in verse 3, verse 2, sorry, he says this. Look out for the dogs. We'll explain why he uses really hectic language there. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Church, I want to remind you this morning that this book is a gift to believers on how to finish well. Your race in this life has a finish line, praise God. It could be sooner than we think. And we are to run in such a way that we cross that finish line well. And we saw two great examples of this over the last two weeks. We saw Cheryl preach on Timothy, embodying all that Paul had called these Philippians to follow. And then last week we saw Bryce preach on Epaphroditus and how these two men are examples that you and me can achieve what Paul is talking about. It's not just for the apostolic elect. And uh, Paul says, church, if we are going to finish well, we have to watch out for a few things in our lives. And I, it doesn't come through. It's very difficult to translate in the English without exclamation marks, but the Greek of these three verses is very strong. It's called the imperative. In, in other words, when Paul is saying, rejoice in the Lord, it's an exclamation mark. It's an exhortation. 
And if you're not familiar with that word, an exhortation is an urgency to do something. Someone's urging you to do something. It's, it's strong. And uh, Mark Wood will tackle the second part of, of this little sandwich. I'm going to focus in on verse 1 and 2 and touch on 3. Then he's going to do a deep dive next week on the beautiful unpacking on verse 3. But for me and us this morning, we're going to focus in on keeping our eyes on a few things which we need to be careful of if we're going to run well. And so my first point is we are to stay alert. Now, unlike our chill church leaders who are in their pajamas today, <laughs> falling asleep. By the way, their theme is about dreams. God's speaking. Um, I think it's about Jacob, if I remember correctly, and Joseph. Um, but for us, we are to stay alert. And I want to read the first two verses again so we see Paul's words. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What Paul is doing here is he starts with a positive exhortation. And uh, under this positive exhortation, first and foremost, is that you and I as believers of Jesus Christ must guard our joy in him. You know, Paul, in just this line, sums up great wisdom in the Christian life. If you want to know what the ultimate application of all truth surrounding Jesus Christ is, it is rejoicing in him. Do you want to know where the point of theory crossing over into experience comes? is when you actually start believing, and the effect of that is rejoicing in the salvation Christ has purchased for you. And this is so profound that I need to ask you and myself the question this morning. Oh, no, 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 it's a statement. Unless you lead yourself into rejoicing in this wonderful salvation that you have received by grace, you have not yet fully applied it or actually really believe it in your life. When Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, after all that I have said, we are to rejoice in the Lord, what he is saying is, you're no longer merely understanding what Christ has done for you, but as a fact, not a feeling, as a fact, you are living in it. You are saying, yes, Lord, this is true. And if it is true and you are preaching it to yourself, church, you cannot help but rejoice. It is good news. Do you know how good this news is? That the day Christ walked into your life and you were made a new creation, all your sins were forgiven by his blood. If you believe that, friends, there is no condemnation that you can live under. That cannot uh, be answered back by the blood of Jesus. When you believe that Christ assures you that nothing can separate, from, separate you from his love, that, that, friends, it doesn't matter how great your failure was five minutes before, when you believe that he's still for you by the grace of God, not your performance, you can rejoice. 
When you so believe that Christ did not withhold his own body and blood to buy you and to say, look, I am trustworthy. When there's lack in the cupboard, when there's people that break into your house, when there are things that disturb your peace of mind, friends, you can say, God, if he hasn't withheld his only son, will not withhold what I need to live for him and to make it to the end. There's rejoicing when somebody has hurt you and there's bitterness and unforgiveness. When you look into the face of Christ and you see the extent of the forgiveness you have received, you start to experience what it means to forgive someone else because you have been so forgiven yourself. My friends, to live in this way where you see Jesus every day and you believe what he's done for you, it starts to lead you into a life of joy. Joy. And until you really believe the gospel, you will not know what Paul is talking about. Friends, can I just appeal to you today? Knowing the truth is very different to living in the truth. And this is not a feeling that you start from. It is a fact. It's a fact. When you get up in the morning, do you know what it means to rejoice in Jesus? Let's make it very practical. You are not starting with what you see in front of you or what you feel inside of you. You are starting with who is alive. Jesus, the Son of God, next to this God in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, this amazing Son of God. He's alive. You, you're getting up in the mornings, far from going, oh my goodness, it's Groundhog Day. It's another day of brushing my teeth, another day of facing the office, and everything's just so boring. And it's just so this and this. Friends, you are getting yourself to see in the morning. It's, I, I know this is a bit of overshare, but I do it. The second someone trained me from a young age to start the day by saying, Jesus is alive. And when I open that shower door and I get in, it's the first thing I think of. He's alive. And friends, that makes all the difference. When you realize Jesus is alive, you know his eyes are open to what's happening in your life. When Jesus is alive, you know when you're praying, his ear is alive and listening. When he's alive, he's, he's able. He's with you. He's a living presence. He's a living confidence that is moving towards you and moving in every aspect of your life. When Jesus is alive, my friends, you can start to have a sense of peace. That this God, he is attentive, he is able, and he's very close. You don't have to feel that. It's a fact. By the way, you will feel it on the other side. But this is a fact. I ask you this morning, how much does truth define your reality versus your mere feelings and experience? You see, if you believe these things, my goodness me, life is good, and God is able, and he's for us. He's for us. As you start your day remembering Jesus is alive, and you believe his love for you, church, as a fact. You so believe that Jesus loves you that you feel it. Do you know that what will give you peace it's not the academic knowledge of Scripture. It is believing the heart of the God behind who wrote it. When you believe Jesus is for you and he loves you, you know he's inclined to you. He's going to answer your prayers. He's going to be for you. When you believe that you are forgiven, you believe, I have been forgiven. My sins have been washed by the blood of Jesus. That there is nothing hindering my fellowship with God that the blood of Jesus cannot speak for. 
that we received his righteousness. Friends, that is just the first two minutes of your day. And rejoicing in the Lord is not so much an effort. It is just believing the facts of what is true. You aren't struggling to believe those things. You're affirming them as outside of your experience. They are true. They are facts. It's not that you are trying to work your way towards them. Friends, they are true in Jesus for you. And that you can expect his help today. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Your guarantee is me in your day today. It is knowing he's with you. It is to talk to him about everything that is on your heart and to know, to know he is listening. It's beautiful. It is to hope in him every day, to trust him every day, to expect him to speak to you every day. It is drawing close to him every day as your nearest friend. And Paul says that is the gift of the gospel, is Christ himself. And the more you rejoice in him and what you have in him, friends, oh, the more your life changes. It changes. Now, I would openly admit that this is a journey. You, you don't jump into this and, and just suddenly arrive. But what you do have to do is apply the truth you know to be fact as a Christian. And you lead yourself onto that solid ground. And the more you do it, the harder it is to be moved off it. You with me? You know what else you'll find? Some people worry that uh, relating to Jesus this way could make you use him. Could make you somehow excuse a life of negligence and sin. Can I, can I let you into a little secret I've learned about rejoicing in Jesus and the wisdom of it? It is this statement. You cannot love Jesus and sin at the same time. It's impossible. The more you love Jesus, the more you realize to live with him and to have a clear conscience before him and to delight in all that he is in the gospel to you is you find you cannot live two lives. You cannot find yourself enjoying both at the same time. The way that the whole Christian life is designed is as you rejoice in Jesus, so he gets more of you. It's beautiful. Can I just ask you today, don't wait before you die and the gospel is real on your deathbed to go, I really am living in the glory of what this salvation means. Don't wait. Don't leave here today and go, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll put that off. This, this might be for me, but maybe I'll just do a few more things. Would you start today, church, living in the joy of what it means to rejoice in Jesus and this good news of him qualifying you to have very close fellowship with the living God? And so Paul's positive exhortation is to rejoice in the Lord and to keep ourselves in the gospel. Sorry, I, I want to make one more point. Paul is saying if there's one thing you've got to keep your eye on positively, well, there's two things, but they go together, is your joy. The second you lose your joy in Jesus, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. Satan will do everything he can to upset you. And if you're going to finish well, then friends, you need to be very, very careful around your rejoicing in what is fact. And, and Paul says, guard your joy. And the way we do this is to keep ourselves in the gospel. Paul says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and he's safe for you. You know what, Paul's actually sent me a, a 
maybe apologizing for saying, guys, I often write to you and I say the same things over and over because actually you need it. You know, one of the great temptations for preaching is to try and bring something new all the time. Where Paul says, no, no, you don't need something new every week. You need to be told a deepening revelation of what is this gospel and what has been revealed. And, and he's saying, guys, I have to drum this into your heads over and over. I'll give you a great quote uh, that Luther says on Galatians 2.14. He says, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. <laughs> Do you know what the gospel is today? I don't want to take anything for granted. Do you know what the good news for your life is? That Jesus Christ came down, the Son of God, was born of a virgin, so that he might live a life you could not live. Perfect. He died a death you were meant to die. And then he was resurrected on the third day to show he was victorious. So that whoever, whoever here today believes in Jesus as their Savior will not perish, but have everlasting life. That is yours in Jesus today. Can I get an amen? And I'll, I'll let you into one more practical secret I've learned. The best way to preach the gospel to yourself is to pray it every day. Don't rush into the presence of God. You remind yourself of your position first. You say, Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful I'm not coming to you today by my own performance, but by your blood. And I come boldly, knowing that you're going to hear me because of this gospel. Now, that's the positive exhortation. But there's a negative. There's something we've got to watch for, which is our, or keep an eye out our joy and the gospel. But now we have to be careful of those that we are going to come across as Christians that twist the truth. And, and Paul calls them dogs. You know, dogs in the ancient world were, there were no sheep dogs in the ancient world, okay? They weren't these fluffy little border collies going, oh, you're so beautiful. <laughs> they were responsible for attacking the sheep, dragging them away from the shepherd, and then killing them. And Paul said, if you go down with these guys teaching, these dogs, it will kill you spiritually. And they're there. What they are doing is wicked. And we'll see what they'll be, they do in a moment. But we need to keep an eye out for them. But I just want to push pause there for a moment and make a pastoral application. It has been my observation that you get a spectrum of Christians. On the one hand, which is probably the majority, you have Christians that don't really care about much of what they believe, or they hardly ever read their Bibles. They hardly ever worry about the content of their faith. It's more about comfort. It's more about how Jesus can make me feel good about life, and if anything comes opposite to that, well, that can't be truth. And, and friends, Paul says, those guys, they're sitting ducks. Uh, he, you, do you notice in, in, in Philippians chapter 3, what happens in the first two chapters before the warning is you have two chapters of truth that Paul is saying, you need to know before I warn you about what you must not know <laughs> or believe. And today, I, I just have to nudge you today, if you don't take seriously what is coming into your life and the teaching that is coming into your life, you are at risk of being a sitting duck. And, and I don't want anybody here to leave thinking that they are God's providential favorites 
that somehow negligence of their faith will lead them to a place of being able to, you know, miss the salvos of the enemy. Satan hates your guts because he hates Jesus. And if he can get a Christian to bring dishonor to the name of Christ or to wander from the very source of life, which is Christ, he'll do anything and he's proved it. He'll even try and crucify Jesus. Okay? So, so Paul is saying, watch out, guys. Those of you who are, are, are not being careful around teaching, you need to be careful and you need to, to engage regularly with this whole counsel of God. Hebrews 2 verse 3 says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You have it. Paul's saying, please don't neglect it because you won't escape if you do. But that's the one hand. There's, there's a sort of sitting duck aspect. But on the other, which perhaps is a bit closer to home in Reformed circles and the circles that we would certainly hold to around Scripture, are the heresy hunters. I don't know if you've come across a Christian who basically trolls YouTube to find out all the people that are getting it wrong. You come across any of those? I'm tempted to give a few YouTubers names. They're very popular. And do you know what? I, I admire the sincerity of hearts to stay close to Christ by the truth. But I do have to point out fixation on potential heresy does not lead to good fruit in the Christian. What I see is there's a critical spirit that develops, a suspicious spirit, and worst of all, fearful. And, and what begins to happen in a Christian who is so terrified of there being false teaching on every corner is they become more interested in what people are getting wrong rather than what God is saying to them. And so there's a spectrum here. And the beauty, so the one hand is the sitting duck, the other hand is the heresy hunter. But the beauty of, of the scriptures, and particularly Philippians 3, verse 1 to 2, is the balance. The balance is you hold the positive and the negative in close tension. And what it results in is maturity. On the one hand, you must remember that there is a positive exhortation. Rejoicing in the Lord must come first. And so, for the heresy hunters, I just want to point out what Paul calls us to first is to be enjoying the truth, not being suspicious of every form of voice. We are to apply. That's how you know what is authentic versus counterfeit. We are to be enjoying this great salvation. Oh, but then we mustn't forget that there is a negative warning too, that there are things out there that we must weigh up. And church, I want to close this point with one quick story from my own life. As a pharmacist, I had to handle hundreds of prescriptions every day. And what would happen is, sometimes, very seldomly, I'd get a script, particularly a psychiatric script, generally for sleeping tablets or something. But it would have been the hundred and something script I would have handled. But as I picked it up, I realized something's wrong. And I noticed, I looked twice, and something, something just not catching my eye. And there was a forgery right there for uh, Schedule 5, specified sleeping tablets. That was the favorite. Or there was some aspect. Of, and, and the only reason why I knew the forgery, the counterfeit, was because I was handling the authentic all the time. I was enjoying it. And I want to just guide us as a church from being a church that's always negative always calling out the things that we're afraid of or what's wrong. I will have to deal with one or two things because Paul talks about dogs being out there. But friends, we want to be a church that we are known what we stand for and we're enjoying it, right? 
We don't want to be up here pointing out what everything is wrong in the world. No, no, so much of Christ must be savored and enjoyed before we can start talking about the counterfeits. And that's the same for you. Do you want to know how to discern truth well? Well, you enjoy it every day of your life. <laughs> you handle it so that when something comes across your path, you'll be surprised. There's an instinctiveness that develops because of your familiarity with the truth that makes you safe. Paul says what makes us safe is the repeating and living in the gospel over and over and over. And that's the best place to be. Right. We have communion today. So before I land on that, I want to just talk my second point, which is the destructive strategy of false teaching. I'll be honest, I don't like doing this, but I'm going to because it's in the text. When Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 3, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, Paul is saying, Christians, there are people out there who are not motivated by the glory of Christ. And if you follow their teaching, you are going to move from rejoicing in Jesus and all of his sufficiency to him being sidelined and other things taking priority. And that's the great danger. You know, the essence of false teaching is to take Christ from being the center and sufficient and either moving him to the sideline or so far out, he becomes almost irrelevant. And the kind of strategy that was happening in the church here facing the Philippians, and it actually was quite successful. That's why the book of Galatians was written. It was written to a church that had succumbed to heresy, another gospel. And the kind of uh, teaching that Paul was having to go up against were the Judaizers. They were men who were Jews, and they had come into contact with the gospel. But they were offended. Please listen to me. They were offended by the fact that simply believing in Jesus Christ alone and what he did on the cross was enough for salvation. They hated that. They said, no, no, no. You have to believe in Jesus and you must have something else to add into the mix in order to have assurance of salvation. And it was the Mosaic law. And what these guys would do is they would come in and they would say, guys, 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 don't you forget Jesus was a Jew? And he would try and manipulate the fact that Scripture says he fulfilled the law. He didn't put us back under it. He, but, but they would say he was a Jew and salvation is through this Jewish line. They were nationalistic. They were traditional. They were trying to get people to buy into to, to the sort of nationhood of, of God's people still being Israel. Where actually, no, no, uh, Paul would teach that we are, are children of Abraham by faith, not Moses. And so this whole teaching was coming to the church and it was damaging Christians because they said you have to add the Mosaic law. Unto Christ's righteousness. In actual fact, all that Christ was enabling you to do through his righteousness was to keep the law. And if you didn't keep the law, you weren't going to be saved. Now, it is a great example of how false teaching works. Do you know, if you add anything to the sufficiency of Christ that will become your focal point. And so instead of just rejoicing what Christ had done as being all sufficient on the cross for forgiveness of sin and, and eternal life, what they said was you must add the law. But then what will happen to the people that were listening is this. They would have heard, yeah, you've got to believe in Jesus. 
but you better keep the law. And so my focus is no longer the sufficiency of Christ, but what I must not get wrong in order to be able to be safe before God. And so Christ gets pushed to the side because the focal point becomes I must keep the law, and the law becomes everything because really Christ is not enough for full confidence of, of salvation. And that's how the damage comes in. Christ eventually goes further and further to the side so that all that you're left with is the terror of whether or not you're keeping God's legal commands well enough. Are you with me? So clever, right? Do you know that it still exists today? It's up the road. Don't go there. It will kill any fellowship with Christ. You know what the end result of, of Judaizers are? That Jesus is merely a good example of how to keep the law. That's where you land. It's damaging. And you can do it even with persistent faith. You get some who will teach, no, no, once of faith in Jesus is not enough. You must persist in that faith in order to ensure that you make it to the end. Friends, if you add your imperfect faith to the mix of Christ's perfect faith, what you will be terrified with is not a confidence in Christ. You'll be terrified by the fact that, am I believing enough right now to get to heaven? And when you sin, oh, was that a moment of unbelief? That means I have to get born again again because my faith is up to that moment. I better go back to Jesus and, and trust him even more. And so you're constantly coming back to confess Christ. You're constantly terrified that your faith is not going to be good enough to be received by heaven. Friends, that is an awful way to live. Can I tell you what the gospel says? The gospel says your little faith was put into Christ's perfect faith, and now God doesn't know the difference. Whatever you add to Christ will become the focal point and you will lose your joy. Are you with me this morning? Well done. You passed Theology 303. What are you adding to your faith today? Is it a pure joy of seeing the sufficiency of Jesus? Or are you holding to something else that is making you feel insecure in your position before him? What are the dogs today? Well, I'll humbly put before you, it's three fake gospels. The first is the gospel I call of the love of money. It's the prosperity gospel. It is still wrecking Africa. Do you know, still to this day, at our Advanced Africa Conference, there is a special workshop on how to deal with the prosperity gospel because millions of Christians on this continent are held captive to the lie that the sum total of the death of Christ was not to meet our need, but to fulfill our greed. It is wicked, church. It is reducing the atonement which was purchased with the blood of Jesus and the forgiveness of sin that flows from it and a reconciliation with God to merely how Jesus can meet the need of your bank balance plus nothing. And let me tell you, we believe in a God who meets need, but we do not preach a God that satisfies fallen greed. The second is the gospel of the fake gospel of the obsession with miracles. Church, this is real. And what disturbs me about this teaching is the atonement can be manipulated. Christ's death on the cross can be manipulated in such a way as to guarantee the switching on of miracles. 
There isn't the real interest in what the, the atonement's really doing or the gospel. What is interesting is what it can get you and what you can see happen because of it. Now, again, we are a church who believes in the supernatural. We believe that, that God can step into the natural realm and change it. But friends, in this gospel, there is a deep problem of actually who's God in the mix. I'm not so sure in this teaching who's actually God. Is it the person that gets to dictate to God about how he must act because of the atonement? No space for his sovereignty, no space for his mystery, no space for when he said to Moses, when he revealed his glory, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Friends, this kind of teaching moves Christ to the sideline and puts self in and says, I get to dictate how God gets to move. And they will not preach the greatest miracle of all which is the new birth. Surely the greatest miracle is the gospel, friends, of saying the old has gone, the new has come, and what the world needs is not entertainment, what the world needs is the gospel. Now there are many who believe in signs and miracles to be attached to the gospel. May God bless them. But if you are going to come and say the atonement is reduced to a switch, which gets me to tell God what he has to do and when he has to do it. You have overstepped the mark of Scripture, my friend, and you've pushed the Son of God and his glory to the side, and you are raising a generation of Christians that are toddlers. Do you know how much of life is there in between? Of revivals, of seeing God move, so much of life is having to live in the ordinary church. That's how it's always been. We trust God for the extraordinary, but we can't dictate when it comes. And maturity is learning to move on from entertainment, where signs and wonders are the little, the purity that has to come every day. Every day there has to be some sort of extraordinary event. Let me tell you, that is not how faith grows. Moses spent 40 years knowing nothing of what God was going to do. Jacob, 40 years. You look at Joseph, you see these men, so much of life is learning to follow God when nothing seems to be happening. And rather than treasuring the greatest miracle that has happened in the Christian life of the new birth, it is downscaled. It is thought to be rubbish because the real exciting things of God breaking into nature, oh man, it's far better than that. I want to say we must reject that. We must reject that. You are never going to grow, my friend, unless you come to terms with the fact that following Jesus feels ordinary. It is difficult. It is hard. It is facing the feeling of failure every day. But what gets you going is the miracle of grace of God saying, you're mine and I'm yours and I'm never going to let you go. And this life I've started, this work I've started, I'm going to bring to completion when you feel nothing in answer to your prayers. When the cupboard feels empty and you're trusting me for food, it does not matter how difficult it becomes. I'm training you. I'm working in you because you're mine. I give a warning to people that go after the obsession with miracles. It will lead to great hurts. Because you are attaching God's character to something he has not guaranteed. And the, the result is only twofold. The shattering reality that I cannot control God and there's only one conclusion. If he won't do it for me, there must be something wrong with me. He doesn't love me. My faith isn't good enough. You want to try and get close to a God that you think you can dictate to? Good luck, it will break you. He leads, we follow. He says we believe. And when we ask, we let him answer as he chooses fit. But the last is perhaps the closest to home for us. It is the me gospel. The me first gospel. Oh, and it's in each of our hearts because of sin. Church, 
It's everywhere today. And I would be foolish to think that I have not been immune to the influence of this counterfeit gospel where the only question it ever asks is what's in it for me. It's rampant. It is a gospel that will shift Christ to the side by never letting you ask the question first. What's in it for Jesus? It's always, what's in it for me? It's always, how can God, 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 God do this for me? How could he not, not do this for me? How, how can he not make me feel uncomfortable? Our, our whole paradigm is around ourselves and friends. The question of what, what's in it for Christ, it's never even asked. And the deep question I have asked myself this week is going, if I took myself out of my theology, how much would be left? I ask you that today. If you had to take the hook of self out of your theology, is there anything left hanging? Do you see that this God was here before you? That you didn't rock up and he's getting along with your plan. You were designed by sovereign grace to be a part of his mighty eternal plan. And when you leave, he'll, he'll, he'll be living long after you. And that when you pray, the concern is God's. The concern is his glory. The concern is what's in it for him. You see, until we have a framework of seeing God as being preeminent, we will always replace it with ourselves. This gospel, it is fake because it is half-baked. And its fundamental premise is God exists for me. Full stop. God exists for me. So when there is any call, any suffering, any cost, any shifting in priority, when he says no and we want yes, when there is any sort of controversial call of the gospel on our lives. We don't get it because it doesn't fit into our framework of realizing it's not all about me. You know what the secret of Philippians is? Is enjoying a savior that is big enough in which you can forget yourself. Is enjoying the big things being settled in heaven without our interference and performance. It is the joy of seeing Jesus as being enough and living that way. But friends, do you notice that the focus is Christ? The focus is the joy of the sufficiency of Jesus for his leadership and his love in our life. To sustain us and to lead us into all areas, even areas we do not want to go. And it is there as freedom, friends. It is freedom. And the reason why Paul calls these guys dogs, he says, guys, if you follow them, you're going to lose the joy of Jesus being enough every day. And the logical conclusion is to ask you, is Christ enough for you today? You know, it's okay if you've slipped into a forgetfulness about who Christ is. That's fine. God in his mercy has spoken afresh. And you know, my experience of the Christian life is one where you can come out of a prayer time with the Lord 
swearing so many things, <laughs> saying, God, I love you so much. You're so wonderful. Oh, Lord, let me live for you today. And my kids come into the room two minutes later, and I'm shouting at them. That's what it's like. Not so? Come on, give me some love here. <laughs> Don't leave me hanging. You know what the wonder is of getting to preach this gospel is he's enough today. He's yours today. Nothing's changed that. In your weakness, his strength is still strong. In your sin, his blood is still powerful. In your wandering, his rod and staff is still long enough. He is able to finish this work in messy people that he started. And today, he is just as committed as he was yesterday. Praise God when you raise up and you get up in the morning, you're not coming up to your, your determination. You're, you're arising to the determination of heaven. And that's where all the hope is. And that's what we celebrate in communion. Remember Jesus' words. He said, do this in. Oh, doesn't this sound like we've done it before? We get to beat the gospel into our heads this morning. <laughs> what a joy. Jesus said, if there's one thing the church must not stray from is the joy of Jesus. Let's close our eyes this morning. Jesus, what are the words that we could use this morning that can articulate what this means to us? Your words were on that night at the Last Supper. You took the bread and you broke it saying, this is my body given to you. And you took the cup and, and in, in this you said, this is the blood. This is the new covenant And it's sealed by your blood. We are not working for this. We receive it as a gift. Oh, Lord, your own body and blood. Wow. Ours today in heaven. Washed by the blood of Jesus. No sin too great. It was conquered on that third day. You might be coming and saying, oh God, my sin is with me all the time. I want to say, if you've come to faith in Jesus this morning, so is the blood. So is the blood. And the resurrection power guarantees victory over sin. Your people, Jesus, are not victims this morning. But victors through your victory. I want you to come this morning rejoicing in Jesus. I want you to come this morning holding this cup and this bread saying, Jesus, you are enough for me. I believe it with all my heart. Help me live like it today. It's what you say. But if there is anybody here who has not yet confessed Christ as Lord and Savior, you cannot yet come. You cannot taste of the benefits of salvation until you believe yourself. What are you waiting for? 
And it's a subtle thing. Sometimes you think, no, I'm okay with Jesus. But when you really ask yourself the question, what you're trusting is how good you are. And the only way you really know if you believe that is you feel bad every time someone preaches because you're just not good enough. Well, well done. You're starting to see how much you always need Christ. Would you come and taste of the gospel this morning for you by believing it? You say to him, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Wash me clean by your blood and make me yours through the cross and resurrection. I believe. Say that to Jesus this morning. So when you're ready, when you come up, the servers are going to actually, are we going to be serving? Okay. When you're ready, come and enjoy. Hold on to the elements once you've come up and go back to your seat. There is some at the back as well. Let's stay in this moment of reflecting on the joy of knowing Jesus.